0: And now I want to get into the press. This is the Press Man Podcast. And I think it's one of the
1: parts of the game now which is, is increasing, and that is pressing. We're talking about Press Man techniques. Again, you will find this information anywhere in the whole world.
0: This is the Press Man Podcast.
1: Press, 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 press. Everybody wants to play Press
0: Man. And we're going to try to put everything together in this particular phase of teaching our press man-to-man coverage. What is a full-court press? So we're going to try and have a look at the boys and the press and how they do it. This is the Pressman Podcast. And you watch the games on Saturday and Sunday, and they talk about the press, press, press. This is episode two of the Pressman Podcast. My guest today, I don't know. Maybe some people call him D Man. Maybe <laughs> I've just made that up. He is a former defensive end for the University of Nebraska Cornhuskers and current CEO of Teammates. Please welcome to the podcast, Des Moines Adams. Des Moines, thank you so much for being here.
1: I appreciate it. And you know, you were actually close. Uh, a lot of folks call me D Mo, and some folks call me D Mo Man. So you were really
0: close. I almost got it. Yeah, right. yeah. I didn't just make that up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I just want to get the sense of, of what you've been up to lately, um, what's going on in your life, where are you at professionally, and uh, how are things with teammates?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, one, uh, I'm not looking forward to more in the grass, you know. You know <laughs> I, I think when it turns green, that's kind of a sign that, you know, uh, there's another task. But yeah, uh, very excited to, to be back with teammates. I've uh, been in the CEO role for now seven months. Um, prior to this, I was with the University of Nebraska Foundation for a year and a half. And I was with teammates in uh, two other roles for about seven and a half years. Um, You know, uh, family, uh, I've got four, a seven-year-old daughter, 10-year-old son, 16-year-old son, and 19 as of today, oldest, who is attending UNL. So um, between work, family, and activities, I'm always busy, but I love every bit of what I get to do every day, Um, and I feel like. My job with teammates is not even a job. It's like it's like a passion, and sure. I get paid
0: to do something I love to do. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for making time for me today. And just so everyone has a sense of, of what I'm trying to do with the podcast here, I told you a little bit about it on episode one. I want to get the inside stories, you know, the stories behind the stories of people who are sports figures in the Omaha area and in the larger the state of Nebraska. Uh people who have made a name for themselves either in the media or in their athletic pursuits and just kind of get the 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 backstory. Um that's where I I live. That's, you know, my big curiosity is the personal story. Uh I've written a number of feature profiles on high school athletes over the years and this was sort of just the next logical progression. And so we have Des Moines Adams with us today. And I'm gonna go right back to the start. Yeah. You Grew up in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Um, My research tells me it's the 10th largest metropolitan city in Pine Bluff. And it's 75% African American. So just tell me what it was like growing up in Pine Bluff.
1: You know, um, that's all I knew. Um, Grew up around a lot of people that looked like me. Um, I didn't realize until I became an adult that I was actually living beneath the poverty line. Uh, My grandparents, I was raised by my grandma, both of my great grandparents, and had a hot meal, you know, every single day. Um, Had clothes, I didn't have the Jordans or the Tommy Hill figures or nothing like that, but uh, I guess the way that I was raised, it just became the norm. You know, gangs, drugs, violence, High school dropouts, folks riding around with rims and beats in their trunk. That was just a way of life. But there was always something that was in me that wanted a different life. I did not want to become a product of my environment. So very thankful for some of the mentors that I've had in my life. People that saw something that I didn't see, my potential. And as I got older, you know, um, I was able to turn this football skill into a talent that helped me to get out of Pine Bluff, to be the first to go to college in my family. So Pine Bluff is similar to your North Omaha.
0: Yeah, I remember you, when we were setting this up, you told me that, and I wondered kind of what you meant by that, because there's a stigma associated there, right? And whether it's warranted or not warranted, there is a stereotype of, of you know the kind of neighborhood that North Omaha is. And so I wanted to get your insight on that.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think a lot of people don't understand the black culture, number one. You know, when people talk about soul food, you know, you, you think of just some of the, the, the good move food. Uh, there's a history behind that. You know, when it comes to greens and yams and fried chicken, you know, if people really did their history. Uh, African-Americans back then, they had to make the best out of the food they had access to. Like catfish, for example. Exactly. You know, a lot of people think that catfish is like one of the worst fish that you can eat because they're like the bottom feeders. Black people didn't have access. They're easy to catch, though. Yeah, yeah, easy to catch, but they didn't have access to salmon and other things. So they made the best out of what they had access to. And to this day, what people call soul food is really food that they only had access to, but they found the way to, you know, to make it
0: good or whatnot it's the cheap stuff that you can make taste good exactly
1: exactly and so there's a a culture that i think people uh misunderstand and there is also a cycle that i feel needs to be broken when it comes to black families uh, and just overall what does it mean to be successful Um, graduating from high school uh, for for some people in the community is not a priority. But what you see is what you get. And if all you see are other people that are dropping out, joining gangs, and
0: just... Um, and maybe making money while they're doing it.
1: Yes, yes. It's easy to get sucked into that. And so um, I'm trying to do everything I can to, to lead by example. There's always more that I can do. But uh, my, my hope is that... Before people judge any community, North community, I mean, sorry, North Omaha, African-Americans, uh, they need to take the time to understand history, to understand patterns, to understand uh, there's, there's so much more beneath the surface that uh, people just don't get.
0: So I grew up in a very small rural community in South Central Nebraska. The town of Riverton currently has a population right around 100 And so when we moved to the Omaha area, I had really never experienced black culture before. There were no African-Americans, you know, living probably within 60 miles of me, maybe in Hastings or Kearney, which is an hour drive. So I had never been exposed to anything, you know, that was relating to African-American culture, only what I'd seen on TV or what I'd heard in music or, or something like that. But what I'm surprised at is you talk about what you call soul food, like fried chicken and greens and the cheap things that you can make taste good, that's not that different from what rural nebraskans, the farmers, the rednecks if you will. Yeah. They're cooking the same things because they don't have a lot of money. They're they're making do with what they have. So I just I just think that sometimes we create these divisions within our societies when there actually isn't one. Like we're living parallel lives and like you, yeah. I had a hot meal, I had clothes, I had a place to sleep, didn't ever have the nice things, you know, we didn't have much, but I didn't know the difference. Yeah. So it, it's just interesting, the parallels, like, I think you and I come from a similar background, but we also don't. Like, I didn't grow up in Pine Bluff, which is, according to what I've read online, violent crime rate three times higher than the national average. It's, it's a fairly dangerous place for a young man to live.
1: You know, which is unfortunate because maybe it was like that when I was growing up. I don't know. But I do know that Pine Bluff has gone downhill because whenever you have jobs that leave the city, you have money that leaves. And when money leaves, that leads to poverty, which leads to violence, it leads to drugs, it leads to stealing, and so... Uh, It's sad when I hear that. It's sad when I read that. It's it's sad that I can't take my family there to visualize where I used to play because of um, just how the community has has gone downhill. Uh, But I think given your background, understanding more about rural communities here in Nebraska, when money leaves, school districts have to consolidate, or they may shut down. My wife, she's from a small town called Chapman, Nebraska, and uh, their school district just shut down, and businesses are leaving, and the town does not look like it looked when she was growing up, so um, I just think we're living in a time now where um, we're being so influenced by division, the news, social media, and... I don't quite get it, but you and me both. But I just try to lead by example with the platform that I've been given. So um, for me on social media, I'm trying to inspire others. I'm trying to provide hope. I'm trying to let people know that positivity is not something that we try to be; it's something that we must choose to be, and that you know we need we need to get to know people's heart and get beneath the skin or the political affiliation or the socioeconomic pieces like we we need to get to know people's heart and the heart behind certain things too.
0: And I guess I should say that that's probably where my privilege came in. I didn't grow up around violence. I grew up in a very small community where everybody left their doors unlocked. You left the keys in your car and you could just walk over to your neighbor's house. And if they weren't home, you might borrow something to come back later and give it back. That's where I grew up. I didn't have the fear of, you know, what was around the corner. What was around the corner might be a horse, right? (laughs) Maybe you'd be afraid of that.
1: Yeah. Hey, and and so for me growing up, what was around the corner could be a loose pit bull. Sure. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) So, yeah. Uh, So, you said that there was always something in you that made you not want to be a product of your environment, and, and football played a big part of that. What was what was the role of athletics in your young life? Was it only football? Were you doing everything? Yeah, you know, I played football,
1: basketball, baseball, um, had cousins. We all, we all did sports. And, you know, when I look back, I think that was my way – I mean, that was – Uh, my grandma and my great-grandparents' way of keeping me out of the streets, keeping me shielded from that opportunity to get sucked into a gang. So I played every sport. Uh, Baseball, I would say, exposed me to uh, more white people than any other sport because there weren't a lot of black kids that played baseball. Um, And so that allowed me, as I got older, I was pretty comfortable, you know, hanging out, with people that didn't look like, look like me. So when I made the decision to come to Nebraska, you know, I got a lot of comments like, oh, you know, there's no black folks in Nebraska, right. and this and that. I was already somewhat comfortable being around white people because baseball gave me that exposure. And so I, I have no regrets making the decision to come to Nebraska because I feel that more people need to be, become more diverse and get uncomfortable Because to be American in this country today, you if you want to be truly successful, you have to be able to get along with all people or have some form of. um,
0: I think it's just understanding you have to know how to talk to different people based on where they they come from and, and what, you know, what they might fear and what they might be anxious about and and how to to deal with different attitudes about those things.
1: Yeah, just being able to relate to people, but I also think that stereotypes don't help. Sure. I, I know why they were created. I mean, they were created to give people a sense of this is what I can expect from this group or this gender or this sex. So this sexual orientation this and that. I get it, but they hinder, they're negative, they divide uh I tend to try to be a prototype to be this new breed of blackness. And so, you know, um, I still get comments at times when, because I, I carry myself in a way where I, I, I try to wear a suit, shirt, and tie every day. You know, comments like, you know, you're different. Or wow, look how sharp you are. And so in my head, I know where it's coming from, but I try to be that prototype to break those stereotypes because I may be that only interaction with a black person and for me to introduce myself, for me to be the first person to speak or for me to give them this, this positive perception that's different than what they've seen on the news or what they hear in the music, I may be that only person that they would have interacted with to give them a different perspective of, of a black person.
0: So, And you mentioned it, and this was going to be one of my questions, coming from a place like Pine Bluff that's 75% African American to Lincoln, Nebraska, which is 84% white. And I think you explained very well why that was so comfortable for you. But the, I think the bigger question is being out on your own for the first time. Um, you've spoken about you know your grandparents and your great-grandparents being driving forces, pushing you forward. Uh, what was that like when you got to Lincoln and realized that uh, you know, it was kind of on you. Now,
1: you know, the nice thing with the football team, we had guys from everywhere. You know, there were other uh black football players from other states. We even had Samoans. We had players from Hawaii. So we had a combination of everything. So being a part of a team, it forces you to work together to achieve that common goal. Now, when I went to classes, of course, I was probably the only black person in the class, but. You know, being exposed playing baseball in Arkansas, but also every day practicing with players, and it didn't matter what your skin color or what state you came from, we all worked together. And that's the attitude that I try to have with teammates by being this inclusive culture where everyone feels welcome and belonged. So a lot of credit to the football program, including athletics and the academics, Dennis LeBlanc, Keith Zimmer, who made it diverse. There were other advisors that looked like me. So I feel they did a great job of making me feel like I belonged in Nebraska.
0: And you were in, you were on the the football team at a famous time of transition. The early years of Frank Solich after Tom Osborne retired. (laughs) Uh, what do you remember about that time that made it special in, in the history of Nebraska football?
1: You know, I did think it was cool that Tom Osborne, when he decided to retire, he made the effort, which he didn't have to, to still come to Pine Bluff, bring Frank, Frank Sellage, and to assure me that the, the Nebraska football team would still be the same, same leadership, share me how many years Frank Sellage was the coach, and when I came to Nebraska, it was pretty much the same staff. I think they only needed to hire maybe um, one person, Dave Gillespie, who was a running back coach. But uh, great years. Went to a bowl game every year in just a tradition. Charlie McBride, Mike Teneper, um, uh, Coach Young. I mean, old school. And uh, it was great to be a part of it. I uh, only got maybe two, three years with them. Uh, but great years. Um I was a part of the last conference championship. You were. You know, I was a part of the last Husker team that went to the National Championship, even though the results weren't in our favor. But uh, still um, some incredible moments that I I cherish to this day. And um, still, fingers crossed, um, hoping that Scott Frost will get the Huskers back. It's just going to take time. Everything takes time. Um, Just – We we just live in this microwave generation. People want things right now. But with time, I do feel that Nebraska will get back to those prime years. It's going to look different because, you know, everyone's good. I mean, who would have thought Cincinnati would be in the top (laughs) ten or, you know, some of these other teams? Well, in 1998, you wouldn't have thought that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, very fortunate that, you know, Coach Osborne uh, believed in me Uh, enough to bring me up here because I I was your non-traditional defensive man. I wasn't very tall, wasn't very big, but I was fast. And that was the strength that he uh, depended on um, for me to contribute to Nebraska.
0: What were some of those early training days like when you you first arrived on campus? Was it a bit of a a culture shock going from, you know, high school football training to now, you know, going through the weight program for one of the the premier – teams in college football?
1: Oh, I hated it. I hated it. <laughs> I mean, because we had to wake up at 5, 5.30 a.m. just to walk over, get our ankles taped, to get dressed. And every morning the coaches always have all this energy, some of the veterans, and I was just tired. And, you know, after three, five days a week, you know, my body is sore. I mean, we're practicing twice a day. And we're finishing the day at 9, 9.30, and it was hard to get sleep. I'm homesick. Uh, I hated it, but then, you know, after did you two... ever think about leaving, <laughs> you know, leaving was not an option. Maybe, uh, faking like I was hurt. Maybe, <laughs> uh, but you know, after two weeks, you know, it got better because, you know, um, I could see the light at the end of the tunnel that practice would only be once a week, but then there's school. So then, you know, my life evolved around school football. I really didn't have that normal student life that other people had but um it was a great time to bond with others that I didn't know I mean I came to Lincoln Nebraska not knowing anyone no family no friends but it forced us to become family because we spent so much time together that eventually those pains and aches turned into laughs and jokes and uh Still to this day, uh, I still consider some of those players that I played with brothers.
0: That's that's what we hear about with that era of, of Nebraska football was that the brotherhood was so strong, and that's what made those teams so great. And to hear you say it just reaffirms that again. Um, I have to poke a little bit. Yeah. We got to go to the Rose Bowl. Yeah. We got we to talk about Miami and the team that people say is – probably the greatest team since the turn of the century and you got to square off with with that group of individuals what was what was it like what was the preparation for playing that game
1: you know the preparation we went into it how we prepare for every game um i can honestly say before the colorado game maybe there was a sense of Contentment. We were just looking forward to the Big 12. We were undefeated. We were the number one team in the country. And Colorado, they weren't even in the mix. So I think we may – we could have prepared a little better for Colorado. But the Rose Bowl, I think we went in prepared. When I look back, and if you were to really look at that game, they just made more plays than us. Their first touchdown, um, you know, the defensive back, he slipped. And that's how the guy was wide open. And just a few other touchdowns, they just made more plays than us. We actually started to build our momentum up in the second half. But uh, I was going against um, Jeremy Shockey, who was one of the best tight ends in the country. And, I mean, I brought my A game, and, you know, he was just another tight end. I was going against – Probably one of the best tackles, um, Brian McKinney, who was 6'9", 375. <laughs> that's just silly. Yeah, but, you know, uh, we studied the players. They were human just like us. So, yes, they had a lot of All-Americans. Yes, they had a lot of first-rounders. But we got the Heisman Trophy winner, Eric Crouch. People forget that. Keo Kraver, All-American. Duane Gross, All-American. They just made more plays than us.
0: Well, That's, that's what it comes down to ultimately. Yeah, right? yeah. So the playing career ends, um, you got to play in Canada. What was, what was the CFL like? What was that experience for you?
1: Well, you know, uh, it wasn't, uh, something that I was excited about cause I did not get drafted mm-hmm. and, um, you know, playing at kind of the, the top, the elite in college, um, it was hard for me to swallow my pride and, and, and do something else like uh, free agency or arena or even Canadian at the time. So I just, just went back to school. I was in grad school, but I still had that itch. And so uh, in the spring of 2004, I went to all these tryouts for NFL teams, tryout after tryout after tryout. And the Edmonton Eskimos were the only one that called me back. And so My agent at the time told me, you got to be on the field. If you want to get to the league, you have to be on the field. And so uh, I was convinced that I needed to get back on the field, even if it meant, you know, going to a different country. But great experience. Um, You know, if I was to go back, I wish I would have just stayed up there. Uh, Just great culture. A longer field, wider field, only three downs, a mm-hmm. lot of special teams. Uh got really cold up there. <laughs> uh, but just love the accents. You know, people would always say A after everything. Oh, yeah. You know, nice day outside, eh? <laughs> um but that's what really gave me that opportunity to come to the States and, you know, be with the Packers on their practice roster and special teams. Then when that didn't work out, did some arena and then I got with the Titans. And then did some arena when that didn't work out, then with the 49ers, and then more arena. And then I ended my football career right here in Omaha, Nebraska, with the Omaha Beef, simply trying to stay on the field. And that's when I realized, after five years of chasing this dream that wasn't really loving me back the way that I was loving it. I had two degrees. And I just made that decision when I was with the Omaha Beef that, you know i'm worth more than this chase and that was my last stint at the age of 28 which in the nfl that was considered old so yeah okay, um,
0: you're you're past the peak at that yeah, point yeah yeah
1: but but i i felt like i was in the best shape of my life because i i knew like i i mm-hmm. understood the game i understood the x's and o's but um yeah 28 was too old and um no one was really um, scouting anyone in Omaha for the beef. But, you know, uh, everything happens for a reason, and I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for that roller coaster, that grit, that sense of perseverance, and that self-motivation. Um, I'm using everything that I learned from my childhood, from high school football, college football, professional football, to playing this game called life because life is like a game either you win or you learn and every day is up to you to put that eye and win
0: that's a good one so i just i wanted to get your sense of something at least i remember for me i i mean i always wanted to play college football the the genetics didn't really uh give me a boost in that regard um i was your your classic try hard (laughs) yeah. <laughs> um, didn't really have a lot of talent, but then, you know, when that, when that you realize that the dream's not going to happen, that's, that's a hard pill to swallow. And I remember it for me was, you know, after high school and deciding that I was going to join the, the Marine Corps instead of go to school, that was the pill. Like that was saying like, okay, this isn't going to happen. You're not going to play college football now. I imagine for you, someone who had tasted it a little bit, like been right at the doorstep of the dream of of making it to the NFL and and having a career there, that must have been really, really a difficult decision.
1: You know, it was hard to swallow. I had to actually chop up that pill because I still remember um, once the Omaha beef season was over, I didn't really know what my next steps were. I had two degrees – uh, didn't have a house, didn't have a whole lot of money that I was sitting on from chasing a dream. Um, and I didn't really know what my value was. And it was kind of stupid at the time because I had two degrees. <laughs> I was a good person and I had those mentors in my life. You know, that, that's why I'm so passionate about, you know, what teammates mentoring is about. Those mentors to remind me of my worth. And it had nothing to do with, wearing that number or that N on the side of my helmet had to do with being a good person Uh, leadership how can i take what i've learned from football and translate that over into a career so uh with those individuals they helped me by being my references and you know got my first job at the university of nebraska lincoln the school that gave me the opportunity to play football and to give me my first two degrees so it was really hard. It took me, I would say, a good two, three years, uh, because I still had friends that were playing, you know, Chris Kelsey and and other folks, Scott Shanley, which very proud of them. Uh, but um, over time, I looked at the other side of those players that didn't make it at all, and they were married, had kids, they had already started their life, and I envied them more the players who were still playing because I wanted to have what they had a wife kids to have a life and so um today I'm 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 grateful and I'm very fortunate that I have a family that I have not just a job but I have a career I get to do what I love to do and um it there's kind of a A part of me that feels like I put my life on hold for this dream that didn't love me back. But everything happens for a reason. And that's what I try to do through my quotes, through my motivational speaking when I have the time. But also just through teammates, helping young people understand the importance of having mentors in your life, role models, people that can share their experience with you because experience is the best teacher, even if you can learn it from someone else.
0: Can you remember the first mentor that made a big influence on you?
1: Yeah, I would say in high school when um, I wasn't your three, four, five star. I was someone that used to love being in a weight room. So a guy by the name of Doobie. All the other players thought he was kind of weird and different. But, you know, um, I could tell he was also a weightlifter lover. And he is the one that turned me into a machine, power cleaning, bench pressing. You know, I was maxing 405 as a senior in high school and people did not really understand Doobie, but, but Doobie to this day was that mentor because if it wasn't for the weight room um, and the strength and being able to harness that with speed, I would have never gotten Nebraska's attention. So Doobie was someone that, you know, never played at the college level. But yet, uh, his passion for weightlifting and seeing my potential, he nurtured it.
0: And, um, yeah. And this was a coach or just a a classmate or?
1: Uh, No, Doobie, he was the one who um, facilitated all of the workouts for the football players. Okay. So while everyone else was jacking around, not taking lifting serious because they relied on their pure talent, I wasn't purely talented. Maybe I was. You know, if you were to ask someone else, they would say, oh, you know, Demo, I'm, he, I always knew he was going to go places. I didn't know that. I give a lot of credit to Doobie and to that weight room because I did not think I was the best football player on the team. But that weight room, uh, it just created a beast in me and the heart because I was always not the biggest or the or the tallest. But I was always the strongest and the fastest and I had that heart and who can stop you if you don't stop
0: it's interesting you know a a lot of people think about mentors and they think it's this this great person who's achieved you know tremendous success and they take someone else under their wing but that's not always the case it doesn't have to be some great person who is you know larger than life or, or anything like that it could be your doobie, who's just he's a strength and conditioning coach at a high school in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And as you say, probably changed the trajectory of your life.
1: Yeah. You know, someone that believes in you, someone that encourages you, someone that helps you to focus on your strengths instead of your weaknesses. What's right about you instead of what's wrong with you it makes a huge difference. And there's research out there by Gallup that that talks about You know, when you focus on your strengths, how that leads to hope, engagement, well-being, which then turns into a successful life. Uh, So there are a lot of people out there that could definitely serve as positive role models. But going back to your point, they think that they have to be great or they have to be successful uh, based on their money or based on where they live. But no, they have no idea that Des Moines Adams would not be where he's at if it wasn't for someone in the community that took the time to help me to believe, to break that cycle, uh, to believe that I, too, could, you know, be on TV one day, that I could be the first to go to college in my family. All it just took was that one person to believe in me, and here I am now. um, I'm impacting thousands of people every
0: single week. So how do we break those cycles in Pine Bluff and in North Omaha?
1: We need more people that are willing to use their role to be role models, even if they made poor mistakes. Uh, I don't believe that you win or lose. Either you win or you learn. So for those that may have been incarcerated, for those that couldn't go to college because they didn't get the ACT score, maybe they can use those examples to help kids know if I would have put more time and energy to get uh, more serious with the ACT, I could have went to college. I don't want you to make that same mistake.
0: And and I think that takes vulnerability. It takes courage. Um, It takes an admission that you did something wrong as well, that you didn't do your best.
1: Yeah. And, you know, no one's perfect. But, you know, that's where, you know, we can all be examples to set up this generation to be the next leaders, not followers, because what they see is what they get. And so it does take some humility to be able to, you know, share those things that you're not so proud of. The fact that I wasn't drafted, the fact that when my son asks, you know, uh, do you have any stats or do you have any, you know, cards when you were at the Packers, Titans, and 49ers, I can't tell him. You know, I can't show him any of that. You know, he's to the age now where he's asking, you know, you know, did, did you make a lot of money? Do you still have some of that money? You know, it's, it's kind of embarrassing, you know. And so for a long time, it was hard for me to talk about my professional career because as much as it sounds cool that I played with three NFL teams, it's not like I actually played or started. So I'm grateful for my wife for just reminding me that, you know, you got farther than a lot of other people.
0: It's like, yeah, 0.1% of 1% of college football players have a career in the NFL.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, th- there are times when I still have that ghost whispering in my ear. You know, morning if you could have did this or would have did this, you know, maybe things have been different. But I'm at a place now where I- I'm at a good place. You know, it's about life. And every day is a grind. Every day... It's about, you know, getting back up when you get hit with bad news or you're getting tackled with discouragement. You're getting knocked down with things that are out of your control. You know, you're going to quit? You're going to make excuses? Or you're going to give your best effort and get back up and be resilient? And so uh, life is so much more important. Winning in life is so much more important than how things could have turned out with football. But it definitely was not easy. But I'm thankful for those mentors that kept me in a straight and narrow. Although I wasn't perfect, but there are a lot of players that are out there that when football did not work out, they filled that void with unhealthy things, things that did not help them to reach their full potential or to help them to transition. I'm I'm just one of the lucky ones.
0: Well, there's – I mean, there's lucky and then there's what you said – that there was always something in you to not be a product of the environment. And, you know, the, the people who fall into those traps, they are the product of that environment of, you know, the failed dream, right? And it's it's not much different from, you know, growing up in North Omaha or Pine Bluff, Arkansas or rural Southern Nebraska. Everybody's got big dreams. And when you, when you don't necessarily reach the highest of the highest of the high of your dreams, it's, I think it's how you deal with that, right? It's, it's finding a purpose where you are. Yeah. And I think it's pretty obvious that you've done that.
1: Yeah. And I'm still doing it. You know, um, leadership is an everyday grind, you know, just because I'm in this position doesn't mean that I've, I've achieved, you know, that I've, I've, I've accomplished, you know, this this goal every day. There's always a new goal. Every day I got to watch what I do, watch what I say, because you win or lose by how you choose in this game called life. And so I I don't take anything for granted. Uh, I have to keep working to be a good husband, a good father, um, a good employee, a good teammate, a good CEO, a good friend. Um, Like the Huskers say, day by day getting better and better. And so that's the attitude that I have every single day. I, I, I never take anything for granted. I will never be content until I take my last breath.
0: So what what do you do? What does what the CEO of teammates do? What's your day-to-day?
1: That's a good question because if uh, you were to ask any other CEO, they could probably uh, give you a sentence or two, but um, – I consider myself a different type of CEO. You know, I am more of a servant leader. Um, I will never ask someone to do something that I'm not willing to do. Um, There are times when I have meetings all day like I'm doing today. There are times when I may be out visiting communities, making sure that all of our programmers feel like they are a part of a team. There are times I'm spending time coaching up our staff to make them feel valued and empowered like they belong. And just overall, um, other things, um, obligations to the board, budgets, all of the, you know, things that-
0: uh, That aren't as fun.
1: Yeah, yeah, that aren't as fun. And so- um, You can say it.
0: Yeah. So,
1: you know, um, every day is different. But I guess where I get most of my excitement is seeing young people have mentors, seeing them graduate, uh, just observing our 192 programs that are all making a difference. I mean, we're in five states, we're growing. And uh, just the communities that are stepping up, partnering with the school districts, creating a village for young people to reach their full potential. And on top of that, to have the opportunity to do this, um, in a row, with an organization that was created by that same person who recruited me from Palma, Arkansas, Tom Osborne and his wife Nancy. Very fortunate, very humbled, and my hope is to be in this position for the next thirty years.
0: Well, I'm I'm sure you'll do a great job. Um, one last thing I wanted to ask: uh, when are when are we going to see those kids in red and white? <laughs> uh well you know um
1: right now a lot of people don't think that the huskers are kind of the team to watch these days mm. you know they're they're more excited about your your Michigans and your Ohio states and your Clemsons and your Alabamas uh but you know right now our, our oldest is at unL um you know Hudson, he's the baseball player if the opportunity presents itself sure why not But I think he also realizes that the reality is you get in where you can fit in. Mm. You know, wearing that red and white and even wearing that black, black shirt jersey at practice was not easy. And I think this generation especially, they expect something by doing nothing. And so it takes more than talent. It takes sweat, time, tears, uh, people have no idea how much it takes to really get to that next level. And so in terms of my kids, all I can do is provide them with the way, but it's their choice. They have to decide if they're willing to put in the work or if they're just willing to go through the motions. I don't ever want to force them to you know, try to accomplish what I did or to – uh be in in my shoes so to speak uh but if they do as i tell hudson be aware of what you wish for because um you have to outwork every other player on the team to get to the next level if you want to go from reserve to jv or JV to varsity what makes you stand out uh you know and so you know i mean everyone in their mind thinks that they're better than the other person but you truly have to be that outlier, have the courage to be different. And I say different, no drugs, no alcohol, you're working out, you're finding energy to get that extra workout in or to stretch or to drink those extra ounces of water so that you're not sore when everyone else is sore. People have no idea what it takes to get to the next level. It wasn't easy. So I say I'd have to say in a long answer. If my kids want it, they can get it, but it's their choice.
0: No, oh, they're they're coming from pretty good stock, so yeah. I'd say they have they have some physical advantages right off the bat. Um, last thing we're gonna do here, uh, it's a little something I like to do at the end. I'm calling it headliners, I'm just gonna give you a few headlines, and I just want to get uh, some instant reactions. Maybe it yeah. sparks a conversation. Uh, But just your thoughts on the state of the world, so to speak. Uh, First up, $370 million economic boost for North and South Omaha sent to the governor's desk. Now, this involves affordable housing, small business boosts, workforce development, tourism, and Epley Airfield's business park. How do you feel about this, going to the, the governor's desk?
1: You know, at the end of the day, there are some gaps there are still some inequalities that are, that are out there. So I'm glad that there are people out there that are bringing this, you know, awareness that, you know, we can be empowered, you know, there are some disadvantages and we want to have an advantage. So, um, I think it's needed. I I think just in society as a whole, more voices are being just being heard. Um, I mean, from, from women to minorities to, um, I mean, just there's so much empowerment. I love it. I love it.
0: It, you know, it, it just sounds like we've been promised these things, these revitalization projects in, in Northern South Omaha for a lot of years. Like we've, we've been hearing about, Oh yeah, we're, we're definitely going to invest in these communities and try and lift them up. And you know, the rising sea lifts all ships and all of that. But it, it it feels a bit disappointing at this point, doesn't it? Like it's, it's never really come all the way through.
1: You know, I would say yes and no, because I can tell you black people have a lot of pride and we just don't want a freebie. We just don't want people feeling pity for us and giving us stuff. So I think it's a combination. Uh, I wouldn't say that, you know – uh Yeah, I think uh, people should, you know, stay true to their promise, do what they say that they're going to do. That's integrity. But at the same time, I know black people have a lot of pride and uh, we also want others to give us the opportunity, not just give us stuff because they feel sorry for us. And so that is my hope. And that's my belief that when it comes to Omaha, there's a lot of pride. Um, in in this community. And um, you know, and I think that's where just the culture needs to be understood that there are a lot of black people, they would rather continue to live the way that they've been living because of their pride, which is a good thing, than to make someone do something, out of sorrow or you know feel bad in a sense no it's just that sometimes the system the cycle has created some disadvantages and some inequalities that they need to be straightened out so i I think it's bigger than just you know oh you know poor black people there is a system there is a history uh things need to happen that have not happened things need to change because nothing changes if nothing changes so if people have said that they're going to do something they do need to do it that's I integrity
0: totally agree okay we're going to we're going to flip over to uh, the sports side of things now so baker mayfield feels disrespected by the browns as you know they famously brought in deshaun watson signed him from houston baker mayfield's been the guy how do you feel about baker mayfield's comments about feeling disrespected by the Browns, as someone who spent time on three practice squads and, and really never got the shot that you wanted.
1: It's tough because, you know, he's been through five head coaches in the four years that he's been there, I think. Um, you know, he's been their guy. He's been their man. and He's seen a lot of changes, a lot of turnover. He's had to go through a lot. And he was their guy. I mean, two years ago, I mean, he almost got them, you know, to the Super Bowl. I mean, they, they were winning and winning and winning transparency is important to a lot of folks and i think baker mayfield deserves that respect he has been a starter in the nfl and to bring in someone like deshaun watson yeah that is disrespect it's like uh no regard or respect for everything that he has put into that organization unfortunately we live in a time where It's like, what have you done for me lately? And I know Baker did not have the best season last year, but let's take into consideration the injuries that he had. These are injuries that he got because he's out there trying to win and perform for his team. So yes, I do believe that the organization uh, could have done a better job of showing him some regard and respect. If they didn't think that he is their fit, because of the new leadership that's in place, give them the opportunity to go to another team and not just draw this thing out.
0: Do you think it's different if it's not a a player coming in who's got this black cloud following him around? So you know the misbehavior of Deshaun Watch alleged misbehavior, we should say. Um, no criminal charges have stuck. So is is it a different situation if it's not? Deshaun Watson
1: I don't think so I think at the end of the day and we've seen this across the NFL Baker Mayfield has been their guy now when new leadership comes in they may have a different direction and maybe Baker Mayfield is not their guy and so if he's not their guy I think there can definitely be some cordial conversations that can be taking place uh, behind closed doors it sounds like they haven't. It sounds like Baker was blindsided. And so I too will feel disrespected because a lot of those injuries came from him trying to help his team win. And when you're a part of a team and when you are the quarterback, you are the leader. And he's had five head coaches. So it has not been an easy road for him. So I don't think it has anything to do with Deshaun Watson. has. It has everything to do with the organization being transparent. And uh, if they didn't feel like he is the fit or the future for the Browns, let's at least have some class, give him that love and respect, thank him for his time, and give him that opportunity to go to another team where he will be a good fit.
0: It's an interesting perspective. I think a lot of people really – they see Baker Mayfield and they, they, you know, they don't like some of his antics and he's very vocal – uh, not afraid to speak his mind. And the other question is, you know, so I don't know whether people think he's likable or not. Uh, I'm not sure that that's relevant to whether or not he deserves respect, uh, whether or not he's likable. It certainly plays into it. Um, but the the fact that he hasn't performed up to a standard, do do NFL teams owe anything? to players who are under contract outside of what they are contractually obligated to provide them?
1: You know, that's a tough one. You know, he's only been, you know, with them for four years. Um, I know that he is owed $18 million next year, whether he's with the Browns or another team. Uh, I think that's where it comes to respect. And so that's probably another reason why he's feeling disrespected because he's busted his tail and now all of a sudden they don't want to pay him. Um, yeah. Also, going to another point that you mentioned, you know, to play at the level that quarterbacks, running backs, wide receivers, your Odell Beckhams, your Tyreek Hills, your Patrick Mahomes, you have to have an ego. Having an ego is not a bad thing. Having a super ego is a bad thing. But you have to have an ego. You have to have that confidence. You have to not worry or care about what people are going to say because social media these days can kill (laughs) you if you get caught up in the memes and the comments. Uh, Tom Brady, for example, who is my favorite player, my favorite quarterback, a lot of people don't like him because, you know, he has an ego and he's a winner. And, hey – He's going to be one of the best quarterbacks of all time because he has an ego, because he knows what it takes to put the eye and win, because he is a leader, because he can influence uh, an average team to feel great. That's what he did for
0: many years with the Patriots. Well, it's especially true with a quarterback, right? If, if you don't believe you're going to get it done, how are the 10 other guys on the field supposed to believe that you're going to get it done? Yeah, yeah. You
1: have to have
0: super confidence.
1: Yeah, because sometimes you only get one shot or two shots. And there are quarterbacks that were Heisman winners like Robert Griffin III. Speaking of the Browns, no, he played for the Redskins.
0: That is is such a sore subject with me. I've been a Washington fan since (laughs) I was a kid. And the turf at RFK Stadium, thank you, Daniel Snyder, ruined (laughs) Robert Griffin's (laughs) career.
1: But, yeah, I'm, but it's just to show that, you know, the NFL is, is a business. It's what have you done for me lately and what can you do for me? So I do applaud players that are signing short-term deals, asking for more upfront money because you are banging your head, your body. I'm thankful that I left the game, you know, to where, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of major injuries. But players are bigger, faster, stronger. Talk about the Browns, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, Miles Garrett, I mean, wow. I mean, he played the same position that I played. And so, of course, between me and him, we probably run the same speed. If not, he's faster and he's bigger and he's stronger. I mean, that is some scary stuff. So... uh, I do not envy NFL players these days, <laughs> and, and so actually, you know, for for, for Lennox, my, my 10-year-old, I would rather to play basketball than football because, I mean, we have defensive backs that look like linebackers. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, everything has changed. The game has changed, but the business is the same, if not worse.
0: How about that? All right, so you, you said you liked baseball. You played baseball growing up. Are you still into baseball?
1: You know, um, I have to because Hudson, you know, he's the 16-year-old 10 grader. He plays baseball. But it's a very slow game.
0: It is it's, a very slow it's,
1: game. is very slow. Uh, I don't watch a lot of the games on TV. I go to his games. I understand it. And, you know, baseball, you know, would have been probably that sport that would have helped me as well because Palm of Arkansas, there was a hometown hero, good friend of mine, neighbor, uh, Torrey Hunter who got drafted out of high school to play with the Minnesota Twins. So everyone everyone wanted to be like Tori Hunter. Of course. That's, that's why guys like me and a few others play baseball. So, uh, yeah, I used to like baseball. Right. But I got into football. And it's a fast game. It's quick. There's a lot of action. There's physical activity. Baseball is slow. <laughs> it's just slow. But, you know, I, I have to appreciate it because of Hudson. And it is an art. I mean, just, you know, even some of the workouts and catching Hudson. I mean, those fastballs, being able to, you know, to catch a curveball and a changeup and just, you know, uh, it it definitely takes an art. That Kind of like hockey. I'm not a big hockey person, but I respect it. It's not something that I would pay money to go watch. So, um, you know, football was my bread and butter. Um, Baseball, I respect it, and and I have to value it because, you know, Hudson's playing it.
0: All right, we've got one last headline here. It's one of the teams that you, uh, you were a part of, 49ers today, and there's a report out that Debo Samuel is asking for a trade. Where do you come down on players asking for a trade?
1: Uh, you know,
0: which is why it's hard to
1: have a favorite team. Because you have these players that you follow, and then next thing you know, they're unhappy. A lot of it has to do with money, unfortunately. Uh, you know, we talk somebody about
0: somebody else got more.
1: Yeah, someone else got more, or they're looking around and they're comparing themselves to other people in their position, and they want to make what they're making. So I'm kind of this, this is kind of a gray area because you're out there, you are sacrificing your body. So, yeah, you should get paid. But back in the day when you had your Troy Aikmans that played on the same team, your Emmitt Smiths, your, you know, Mike, I mean, Joe Montana, Steve Taylor, Jerry Rice. I mean, these are players that played on the same team. There was loyalty. Money was included, but it wasn't about the money. Nowadays it's about the money. So Status
0: has become such a – with, as you said, social media, the TikTok generation, Instagram. It's the the status symbol has, n- I don't think ever been bigger. Maybe maybe ancient Egypt when you had to have the tallest <laughs> pyramid. but it, it's just everywhere that you know you've got to have the one- of a kind shoes and the one of a kind car and who who has a private jet and who doesn't. That's that's so much of what the superficial, social media is about. And I think that drives some of these things. It's like, well, I can't, I can't buy a private jet now, but if I sign a 10 year deal worth $350 million, then maybe I can't.
1: Yeah. And then, you know, also with the agent, you know, uh, I don't think I have ever heard Tom Brady complain about money because he probably had a good agent, probably had a good accountant and he was smart with it. You know, he just simply wanted to play the game football
0: I think he wanted to be the best ever yeah and that was that was more important to him
1: yeah and it's a game so I'm neutral because you have probably heard thousands of players that because of the constant hits to the head that they are struggling today some players are struggling squeezing their hand or walking because of the pounding and so I get it players want to get paid but it's not about the game anymore. It's about the money, and that is unfortunate. So I can see Debo's point, but at the same time, he's just got out there and played because he has no idea how many other players would do anything just to wear a 49ers uniform. And that's where being grateful, being humble, and just being thankful, not spending your time comparing yourself to what other players are having, to what social media is feeding into you. Um, just have no idea there there are thousands of people that would do anything just to play the game. So uh Debo just needs similar to Aaron rodgers which, <laughs> which 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 i was I, I was very disappointed uh, unfortunately. It needs to be more about the game, not about the money. And that's 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 what I have to say about that.
0: And that's the final thought. We've gone just about an hour. It's flown by. It's been absolutely awesome to talk to you, Des Moines. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Hey, I appreciate it. And, again, um, anything I can do. Um, number two is a lot of pressure to be – Yeah, you're 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 on
0: the second show. Yeah, hey, forever in the history of Pressman Podcast.
1: Well, keep in mind when you get to number fifty-six and number (laughs) ninety-eight, because fifty-six that's the number that I wore in the pros. Uh, Lawrence Taylor was my favorite NFL player, you know, on the defense. And then ninety-eight, that's just um, the number I wore. For the Huskers. So keep that in mind when you get to number 56 All right. and number All 98.
0: right. We'll keep that in mind. That's a good idea. All right. That's going to do it for episode two of the Press Man podcast. We'll be back in a couple weeks with number three.